Hey, it's Jay. And as you might know, if you listen to this show, I came out of marketing. It's not that I love marketing. It's that I love the word that preceded it. Content, content marketing. Someone told me I can create. So I showed up for work. Most of my career has been built by questioning the status quo of marketing and by extension, the business world, because I mostly can't stand it. Something else I can't stand is how most business podcasts, not all, but most are exactly the same thing. You can replace their names and it would all make sense. You can replace their names with the same title, talking topics with experts. Sure, you might sell to salespeople, maybe you have software for salespeople, so you talk to sales experts about how to be great at sales. Maybe you sell tools for marketers, so you have a show talking to successful marketers about how to be successful at marketing. And then you have those macro-level shows, which is like, you're a success in business. Tell us all how to be a success in business, because I want to be a very important business success. I'm disillusioned, all right? I'm jaded. Chill out. Anyways. One of the early experiences I had in podcasting was building podcasts for brands. I still do this uh, about once or twice a year. I will develop and host and do any other parts and pieces or find great freelancers who can a business show for a client, for a B2B brand. And I've noticed that the best are the ones that take responsibility for the final experience. The worst are the ones who blame the medium. Well, we tried that typical business show and it just didn't work for us. But the best go, you know, we're going to develop a unique premise. We're going to develop a unique format. We are going to take responsibility for how much or how little our audience ends up loving the listening experience. And there's this one little piece of the listening experience that I feel like the best embrace and the others reject. And that is this. If your guest does not deliver something great, that is not their fault. It's yours. On the show today, we talk to a podcaster who does an amazing job of setting up their guest for success. And yeah, he's going to interview a lot of people you've probably heard of or even heard before on other business podcasts, but not the same way you'd hear them on his podcast. And he takes responsibility. Remember, If the guest doesn't deliver, it's not their fault. It's yours. So what can we deliver? What can we do to ensure the guests sound great? Because that is our responsibility. I want to know how to do the things you do. A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. This is three clips. I wouldn't lie to you. Who would lie to you? Go listen to a podcast where they tell you the truth. You you deserve better is what I'm saying, my friend. This is absolutely three clips, just like the theme song says. And just like the cover art says, I am Jay Akunzo. On this show, we believe a very specific thing about the creative craft that is podcasting. Great shows unfold in the micro, in the minutia, the daily practice of making things over and over again in service to the audience. If we want to make someone's favorite show, well, we're better off focusing on the tiny techniques, the refreshing wrinkles, and those little behind-the-scenes moments that add up. And so we ask our favorite podcasters to come and visit us and break down what those moments were that made a show that we admire. Three Clips is a Castos original series. Today, we're going to talk to the host of one of my favorite new podcasts, Creative Elements. 
shocker for listeners to this show to realize Jay Akunzo likes a podcast about creativity. But it is. It's a wonderfully refreshing show hosted by another Jay, Jay Klaus. Jay is a tech entrepreneur, a business strategist, and an educator who has made a name for himself in online community building. Aside from hosting Creative Elements, he's the creator of Freelancing School, an education platform that helps creatives make a living online. He's also the Community Experience Director at Smart Passive Income from an OG podcaster, Pat Flynn. Jay hosts two podcasts. I mentioned Creative Elements. He also hosts a show called Upside, which is about startups and investing in startups outside of Silicon Valley. On the show we're going to profile today, Creative Elements, Jay bridges the gap between art and business by talking to mostly famous creators about the nitty-gritty of how they made a living. His audience? Creators. So he asked famous creators, how did you do this professionally? How did you get there? How did you grow? Tell us all, because we want to do that too. The show publishes weekly, and it's part of a network called The Podglomerate. Jay refers to his format as narrative interviews, which you'll hear a lot of samples of, or three to be exact, because like I said before, I'm not going to lie to you, this is three clips. And each episode of Jay's consists of an interview with one single guest surrounded by some moments of voiceover that Jay uses to serve as a really helpful and inspiring guide into the person's story and into the lessons that we can learn. It's probably best just to wait for the clips and to hear Jay explain it himself. But before we get there, I wanted to talk to Jay about his first foray into podcasting as a prolific online creator. One of the things that struck me about your show and the timing of it, Jay, in your career is you'd created a lot of content and a lot of digital products by the time you launched a podcast. Given that wealth of experience, what did you find uniquely challenging about creating a great podcast? Well, nothing was challenging until I put the first version of it out to Jeff Umbro, the CEO of the Podglomerate, the network I was on, and he told me that it just wasn't very good. <laughs> so, okay, um, we're going to, I got to parse a couple things. So you're on a, you're on a network. I do want to touch on that in a second. You're on a network called the Podglomerate. Jeff yeah. Umbro is their founder and CEO. Yes. Yes. And he and I, we had actually chatted probably two, almost three years ago at this point, um, we had another podcast called Upside, which still exists. It's a very niche show. We talk to startup companies that are not based in Silicon Valley. And we'd gotten introduced to Jeff of the Podglomerate as somebody who might be like a marketing and distribution partner. And the gist of that conversation was we, we might be able to work together, but he has a much easier time and prefers to work with shows from launch. So I just kind of filed that away. And we continued to build that show. And it got to a point where personally, I was more and more moving towards the world of creators. And so I approached Jeff pretty early on with a concept um, of basically interviewing high profile creators about their work. But instead of talking about their work, talking about kind of the business model, if you want to put it that way, it's, it's a lot like how I built this for digital creators. And he liked that concept. I put together an initial episode with Jason Zook, who you may know, and I sent him the first version of it. And it was very raw. It was like raw interview. I did like a Mark Marin style five minute soliloquy on the front end that was not planned whatsoever. And Jeff was basically like, yeah, there's something here. But how is this not going to be like every other interview show out there? And that was what forced me to reflect a little bit more. How is it unlike any other interview show out there? 
Well, one, I think I honed in on the premise a little bit more where I do want to talk to people. It's interesting. There's kind of this barbell where the people on my show either do a ton of interviews or they do no interviews and have no interest in doing interviews typically because they have a large enough audience. Why would they even need my show? Um, But I think honing in on breaking down how did you actually get to do this full time was a unique position in the market at that time. Some shows would touch on it on their interviews, but you know, you interview James Clear and you probably talk about habits. You interview any author who's going on a book tour, you probably talk about the book. I'm not interested in like that level of specificity on the work. I wanted to dive into how did you get to do this full time? How did you get to be a creator and have people support you through your work so that you could make a living? Right. So that was number you, one. You- you explore what I'd call the meta level of it all. You're not interviewing them about the themes that their work explores so much as the mechanics of their business and, and creative works. Um, yes, because a lot of these people we follow, we we implicitly aspire to a similar career, but we have to do a lot of intuiting and like reading between the lines as to how did you get to that level where this actually works? There's another trade-off. There's another differentiator I picked up on which is in the production and the style of the show. I say trade-off because I think you, you made kind of an interesting one that I wanted to, to, to lead with today, which is I think most people think, I want to do a narrative show. It'd be great to do voiceover and music and sound design and a lot of like shows we admire. You know, If you're not from like the Tim Ferriss straight interview style show, I know people bleed in all directions and like lots of shows, but it kind of is two camps. It's like you're from that style, like DIY interview podcaster style, or you're from the camp of like public radio. And if you like that style, you might aspire to do it. But then you're like, well, I've heard the credits on those shows. I don't have the budget. I don't have that level of team. And it sounds so backbreaking and feels like it to do that kind of edit, um, says a guy who also hosts a narrative show. I can attest to that. And so I'll just I'll do an interview show. Because it seems easier. The production is something that you kind of blended on creative elements. Like you have a narrative intro. So you have voiceover and some music that leads you in. And you do some narrative transitions in between segments of the show. Or at least sections of the show. I shouldn't call them segments because they're not like named chapters. How did you land there where it's kind of borrowing from both traditions? I think I did it kind of instinctually because when i got that note from jeff he even told me he said maybe you should think about instead of you know ranting at the beginning of this maybe you should think about scripting this and in fact maybe you should consider doing voiceover generally during parts of this and so i went way the other direction with the next take where none of my questions were naturally read in the interview they were all voiceover recreated and that felt like too much but the the places where i took the most inspiration from i think were uh, Without Fail by Gimlet, which I thought was a great show that was buried not long into its existence. And then second is Tropical MBA, which is kind of in a similar camp to where Creative Elements is now in terms of level of production, where we're not going full on NPR, public radio, but we're we're past you know the raw interview to do some thoughtful intros to really pull in elements from the interview into the intro to pull in third party sound files into the intro into the episode and that seems like a good in between for me that's sustainable and interesting and differentiated i actually find now depending on who my guest is i prefer not to do a ton of narration in the interview because i think there is some magic to hearing the full cut of the conversation 
Um, and maybe that's me as a cynical producer myself, but when I'll listen to a show and there's voiceover and production tricks within there, I'm asking myself, what did the raw version of that sound like? Cause I'm like curious and I want to know what led to this answer I just heard. And so personally, when there are areas where the magic happened in the conversation and I like did a deep listen and I heard what they said and I played off of that, I actually want to leave that in for the listener to see how I'm progressing as a creator and to hear that actually I responded to that well in real time. Um, but the intro will remain heavily scripted, uh, going into and out of ad breaks or when I take like a right turn in the conversation, I like to smooth that turn over with uh, a thoughtful voiceover, that type of thing. So we're going to move into the clips and they're all pulled from the same episode of Creative Elements, which is where you interview the writer, Tim Urban. His blog is Wait But Why. I've had the pleasure of interviewing him as well. I know there are some unique challenges and some unique delights that that come with interviewing someone of the personality uh, and say like intellectual horsepower and uh, energy of Tim Urban. So we'll dive into that. But in the first clip, you are actually referencing a conversation from a previous episode of your show with author James Clear, another sort of veteran blogger of the ilk of Tim Urban, although James has now moved into sort of that role of author with his million plus copy bestseller, Atomic Habits. And in the interview with James, he actually brought up something uh, about a conversation he'd had with Tim Urban. So here you are calling it back. And then you actually play an excerpt in the Tim episode to bring that back. So yeah, we're going to go and hear a clip within a clip on a podcast called Three Clips. Stay with me, my listener friend. It does not get more confusing than that. I promise we've reached the most complex we'll ever reach. We're going to go. It's like Russian nesting doll style. Clip within a clip on Three Clips. Exception. Yeah, right. So let's let's go to that. I'm going to say the word again. Clip. One of the first episodes of the show was talking with our mutual friend, James Clear, and he referenced you in talking about how he thinks about the quality of work and the difference of doing a plus work versus a minus work. One thing I'm really glad about now is that I took the time to get it right. Tim Urban and I have talked about this, the difference between doing a plus work and a minus work. And it sounds like a fairly small thing. And it's like, hey, an A minus or a B plus, like that's pretty good. You know, nice job. But actually in any sort of media, books, podcasts, YouTube, social media, the the internet provides infinite leverage. And so all the returns are at the tail end. And so doing A plus work is, it's not like 1x or 2x or even 5x better. It's like 100x or 1000x better. Um, and so I think it's worth it to take the time um, to do that. Could you talk a little bit more about what A plus work means to you? Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, in, in, if you think about like sometimes grades correlate to numbers, like one through a hundred. So like maybe a 97 to a hundred is an A plus or whatever. You, you, if you can never try to go for the hundred in writing, it doesn't work. There's no such thing. Mark Twain always would have done it better than you. I'm saying this because like I, I have a perfectionist personality and if I think something could be better. It drives me insane. And I have to try to make it better. And that's a trap. And often trying to obsessively make something better and better makes it worse. It makes it longer, makes it more convoluted, you know, because you get all the ideas in, but now it's not that fun to read. So um, if, if this can be a trap. This is kind of like the first disclaimer about this topic. But then if you're, can we have that, if you're pushing back against that instinct, then it can be a good rule against a different instinct we have on the other side, which is laziness or, or, or just like it's, okay, this is fine. This is good. Versus like if I did six hours of research, I could add one paragraph here that would be really good. 
but I need to understand that topic so well to write just that one paragraph. Why is that moment, and, and I mean it in the post-production sense, so the whole thing taken together with James's clip, an effective one in your show? Any opportunity you have to basically, instead of tell somebody something that happened, show them that. It's so much more powerful. It's so much more interesting as a listener. It's a better story technique because I could have paraphrased what James said. But why do that when I have the audio and I have the rights to it? It's just so powerful and amazing. And also for me, as I'm doing production, one, I was so glad that I had that memory when I interviewed Tim. And then two, when I'm in my editing cave and I'm just listening through the episode and then I hear that reference, I stop what I'm doing. I pull up my transcript from the James Clear episode. I find that timestamp and I drop that audio in and I listen to that as a moment. And I just hear like that works. There's like a click, like almost like a puzzle piece where I'm like, that works. And that's the most fun I have doing these episodes because after a while, like you develop your own template for what an episode of creative element sounds like. And you know, like this is what happens on creative elements in this moment. And I'm going to go make that happen. Same thing happens if a guest references a video on their YouTube channel that like took off for them and changed things for them. I am 100% with their permission, going to go find that clip and cut it out and put it in there because yep. it's, it's like a rich experience as a listener that, you know, it's, it's not me it's not put through the lens of how does Jay analyze this moment? It's I'm going to put this out here for you to analyze and for you to understand and maybe even go a level deeper because maybe in that clip, James says something that I thought was unimportant that you hear that creates a new moment or learning for you. What episodes of Creative Elements do you feel like were your A plus work and what was different in the process of pulling those together that was maybe not present in most? Man, uh, interesting response here, because probably the one that I think about the most is that episode with James. But that was episode two. And probably objectively from a production standpoint, not my best production work. But what made that episode great was James is incredibly articulate. He was very generous with how honest he was being about his process. And I did ask some good questions. And if I look at the transcript of just the pure interview of my show, the guest speaks for 80 to 85% of the time. So 80 to 85% of the quality of that show is actually what the guest brings to the table, right? <laughs> From a pure production standpoint, I think my episode with Ali Abdal was really fun because I could pull in a bunch of audio from his YouTube at opportune times. I had a lot of fun doing that. Actually, the least downloaded, least popular episode of Creative Elements of all time is one of my favorites from a production standpoint. And it's with Adam Turla of Murder by Death, my favorite band. Not nearly as intense as the name sounds. But because... He's a musician. Anytime he talked about a song, he gave me permission to pull in audio from that song. And it's just an awesome experience as a listener. Oh, yeah. Uh, even even some like moments where he talked about, yeah, actually, you know, we played the show. And at one point, uh, the lights went out, the electricity went out. And it became like this urban legend that when we play the show, it shuts down the power. There's actually a recording of that for sale in our big cartel still. I go find that. I spend a dollar. I buy it. I put that audio in there. And it's amazing. You hear these people like, whoa, what happened? You know, the, the power went out. Those those episodes, like you said, it's it's not the most popular, but it's your favorite. Those are so important, though, aren't they? Like they take casual fans or passive observers and participants and they turn them into super fans in many cases. And there's not a lot of super fans. But, you know, especially you and I are 
independent creators that super fans are everything it, you know it's 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 what ma it makes or breaks your month your your livelihood your distribution in many cases you know through word of mouth and so in addition to creating super fans i also just think it's fuel for your journey like i just need one of those where it's like this one's for me everybody and like the folks that really like it are really gonna like it but then you're back the next time feeling whole feeling good feeling motivated that's equally as important because you have to show up your best in the work too. Um, but now I understand now why that's your A plus work for many reasons, right? The themes, who it was, your favorite band, the production of it. Can you touch on the James episode really quick? Because you mentioned 80 to 85% of the value is what they say. I understand that. Of course, you do still have to ask the right questions, create the right environment, you know, book the guests to begin with. So, you know, I, I would say you still own the experience and need to ensure that that 80 to 85% is great um, in some ways even if you're not speaking, what was a plus about that? Right? Like, cause every episode ostensibly is 80 to 85%. Every episode you're booking somebody you hope of a, of a James clear caliber. It can't just be that it was James clear and most episodes aren't that made it your a plus. Can it? Cause otherwise you're kind of screwed. <laughs> it's a, it's an existential question for sure. I mean, I think that his willingness to really meet me where I wanted to go and be honest about his experience. Like he talked about, you know, there are parts of the journey of writing this book that were really dark and hard. Mm -hmm. And he really got into his process in a way that not only spoke to the writers in my audience, but really any creator. So I thought just the way that he articulated met me where I wanted to go, met listeners where they were probably listening from and didn't have any type of agenda. Like he didn't care if he got more subscribers or sold more copies of his book. He had no interest in talking about his book if I didn't want to talk about it. Um, as an interesting note, that is also one of two episodes of my 72 that were recorded in person. And that probably had some level of impact on like the comfort level of the interview itself. Yep. I 1 million percent agree. This show got better when we started doing these interviews in view of each other with, with video switched on here on, on Squadcast. And so, you know, for example, I've heard James on other shows. He didn't seem to meet the host where they wanted to go quite the same way he did with you. And perhaps that's part of you being in person or not just the mere fact that you were in person, but that it was you in person and the things you are uniquely capable of doing, recognizing that this is what comes naturally to you. Can you hazard a guess as to the things that you uniquely do well that, you know, brings out the best in a guy like James? I do think, you know, I take the role of host very seriously in terms of if you were hosting a dinner, you would treat that experience in a way where people were comfortable in the space, where they were glad that they came, that they enjoyed themselves. And if you were to ask them to come again, they would want to do so. And I don't think a lot of podcast hosts take that role as host that seriously. I think they think about it very transactionally mm -hmm. and it gets the conversation off to a weird start with, again, with James, we met in his house, you know, like we had a pre-existing relationship. I showed up at his front door. We had to decide he had just moved. So we had to decide like where in the house we wanted to record this thing all along. You know, we're talking, we're catching up a little bit. And he knows that when we get off the mics, I'm still going to be in his house. <laughs> like he can't click leave in the top right and wash his hands of this experience. So like when you have to be more human with somebody, I think you meet people there um, with other guests where that is not the case. I think I do a good job of two things. One being... I'm very conscious of my energy and my inflection because I think you can elicit 
certain responses purely with the way you ask questions. Amen. Uh, and, and it goes positive and negative. If oh, yeah. I make the question seem intense, I'm probably going to get a defensive response. If I ask an intense question in a kind, inquisitive way, I'll probably still get like a good response. Yes. Um, so I, I'm very keyed into that. And I also try to not put someone on a pedestal. Like I try to respect them, but I don't try to put them on a pedestal where it changes their relationship to me. I want them to, as much as I can, feel like I am a peer that they're talking to about their business. All right, so let's go to the second clip. Uh, in this clip, Tim Urban is explaining his research process for these really lengthy, really entertaining, and really insightful essays that he writes, and uh, also doodles around. And he talks about how he decides whether or not he knows enough about a topic to write something about it. And then we hear you cut in with some additional context, which is a little move I want to tease out after the clip, because I think it's really smart. So let's take a listen. The way I think about research is, is more like bringing myself up to a certain level. So like the scale I like to talk about is like a um, one through 10. 10 is the most the world's leading expert on something. And nine has a PhD, you know, down to a one's never heard of the topic. So if I started a two or three, right, you know, depending on the topic, two or three is not nothing. It means like, you know, I, I can have a conversation about this. I have some initial thoughts, but I'm in that peak of the Dunning-Kruger thing. That's the thing I call Child's Hill. Well, you, well, you really think you get it, actually. And you, you're, you're actually at a two or three and you feel like you're, you're at like a six or seven. I wanted to jump in here quickly in case you're not familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, because it's a really fascinating concept that I think is important to understand. The Dunning-Kruger effect is named after social psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger. It's a cognitive bias in which people with low knowledge or ability overestimate their ability. And similarly, people with high knowledge or ability tend to underestimate themselves. If you look at a graph, imagine the vertical y-axis as confidence, while the horizontal x-axis is knowledge. When you have just a shred of knowledge about something, we're prone to be overconfident in what we do know, because we're actually so unknowledgeable that we don't understand how much there really is to know about a topic. As we learn more about a topic, we realize how deep the rabbit hole goes, and we lose a ton of confidence that we know anything at all about that topic. This is why very smart people often suffer from imposter syndrome, because they actually know a lot, but they also realize how much they don't know, while their ignorant peers who know very little are steeped in overconfidence. That peak of complete overconfidence right before you lose confidence in yourself is what Tim has referred to as the child's hill. So... All right. So the way I see it, you had you had three different choices. When Tim says very quickly a concept he knows that we might not with the Dunning Kruger effect, uh, choice number one is you just continue the episode without ever explaining it and let Tim go. Choice number two is you can interrupt him, kind of break a good flow or a good rant, which is you know again I've interviewed Tim. He he speaks in very lengthy answers. It can be difficult to get a, a word in edgewise. Uh, so you could have interrupted him, or what you did was you recorded voiceover later and you just jumped in to define it for us why choose that option basically that's my default choice because again i want to be economical with the time that i have with the guest and you you brought up a really good point of not interrupting a good flow because that can sidetrack things entirely and be unnatural so if there's a moment where i feel like oh this is a concept that listeners might not understand then my decision tree basically goes to but do i understand it 
And if I understand it, then I will worry about that in post-production and bring that in. If it's something that seems proprietary, to put it in a way, or something that has to come out of the guest's head, I might ask them to explain that. Um, And I'll usually do that after they answer, because then through the magic of post-production, I can cut that back in earlier uh, and keep that thought going forward. But I really try not to interrupt much unless it's like something I really personally don't understand and I'm not confident that I'm going to be able to explain in post-production through research or something. Um, But otherwise, I want to keep the guest answer natural, especially if they're on a roll. I I did mention that, you know, like the the ranting, not rantiness, rants are the wrong words, just the lengthy, very excited answers that someone like Tim gives when your show like yours is, Jay, is hoping to be that how I built this of some solo creator's career, a career is a big thing to fit into a little amount of time. And there might be some big missing holes to understand fully how Tim became Tim and how he built his business. And how do you make that trade off of like, this is like interesting theory, but it's not his story. So I have to redirect him versus like, it's just, it is so interesting. And you kind of like sacrifice or trade off the fact that, you know, it's not going to be nice end to end how I built this type storytelling. And the reason I'm asking you this is I know for a fact that Guy Raz, and I'm sure there's exceptions, but for the most part, given the size of his show and the fact that it's NPR, they do a ton of research. There's multiple people. They do prep calls with folks around the guests, maybe sometimes the guests themselves. They have more than an hour to whittle down to whatever it is, a 40-minute episode. Like, There's a lot of advantages that that show has to get a clear picture of the end-to-end career. So how are you trying to approximate that or navigating these tough trade-offs when you don't have all those? It's really hard. I, I try to do as much research as I can, but even that, I, I don't do as much research as I want to. I can't. Um, and so I, I really go into every episode with an angle or what I believe to be the story that I want to tell, because especially with people like Tim, where there is a lengthy career, I can't go chronologically year by year and say, how did this happen where I might want to? Um, and so I try to have a specific angle for every episode. Like this is the story I want to tell for the listener. And this is why it's relevant to where they are today. Yeah. Um, is it the story of Tim or insert guest name here, or is it the story of Tim's creative element? Cause it, you know, when you name your episodes, you have in brackets, the element, I think Tim's was struggle, for example, um, quick plug here as we speak, uh, it is, uh, June 24th next week. The guest on your show is this guy. And my, yes. I think my element is tension, I believe, Yes, it uh, is. which I love talking about for a storytelling uh, purpose. So are you trying to tell their story or the story of their element or something different? Well, I don't know their element until we get on a call. I don't ask them to submit that ahead of time. I have introduced it into my like pre-recording spiel to talk about that so that I can try to guide us into it and have that tie things together. But I really want to like I, I step I step back and I say, I'm a creator in 2021 and I'm trying to break through on this platform that today's guest is a part of. So I want to understand that creator's journey on that platform or in that medium and try to pick apart what might be relevant today with as much storytelling as I can on the part of the guest. So they're very closely woven together. That's the ne- that's the needle I'm trying to thread. And I don't always do it, to be honest. Sometimes, you know, 
Uh, Jordan Harbinger is a great example. Had Jordan on the show. Audio was great. Episode was great. I got so enamored with his storytelling around sales that I didn't talk at all about how he got to be where he is as a podcaster. <laughs> I missed the mark entirely on what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Uh, and that's going to happen. But uh, try to make it happen less and less. I, I feel like if you're that lost in it, the listener would be too. Like you have totally. a good sense of things. You have enough taste. And you were also like, you know, Tim talks about this all the time. He mentioned it on both of our shows, actually. He writes to a stadium of Tim's. So I think in many ways, you're podcasting to a stadium of Jay's. And if you're way into a tangent, chances are good that people would probably prefer that you stay there versus like, you know, hit some check boxes. Um, given that these are the types of guests you book, Jordan Harbinger, you know, I mentioned Seth Godin, Cole Kushner, they've been on the show, Tim Urban, James Clear. How do you book these guests? Like, what what is the process? Could you walk me through it? Because I feel like guest booking for many people falls to two camps uh, perception-wise if they're not familiar with doing it consistently. One is I have a warm intro. I have a connection already. Or the other is I have to be a bother constantly, right? I have to ping them. It's incessantly, email them incessantly, DM them incessantly. You're a very thoughtful guy, very measured guy. That's very obvious to many people listening now. How do you book your guests? I have a really high hit rate for cold emails. I think Jordan was maybe the one guest who was introduced to me. I didn't even ask for it. It was just um, Vanessa Van Edwards said, I think you'd be a great guest on the show. And she made the connection. I was super. What do your cold emails say? They're very direct. And I want them to fit within one scroll of your thumb on a mobile screen. And the subject line says interview requests. Can we talk about your creative career? The body of the email starts with something customized as to why I'm reaching out to them specifically, a reason why I like their work. Then I say, um, I'm the host of a podcast called Creative Elements, where I talk to creators about how they made a living from their art and creativity. And I want to talk to people like you about how you made it work. Then I put in bold the pitch and I put like this pitch about the show saying it's a narrative interview style podcast. It's on a podcast network. It's been featured on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and CastBox and some others. Uh, I've interviewed guests like James Godin and Seth Clear and Tim Urban and Vanessa Van Edwards. Would you be open to a 45-minute remote interview for the show? If so, let me know. I'll send a scheduling link if you have time in the next couple of months. No pressure. Thank you for the consideration. My biggest limitation is that I don't send more of those emails. Um, I don't often get rejected. The actual rejections I've gotten have been so kind, actually. I more often get ignored, and that's okay, because a lot of these guests I book they may take a couple of asks. Anytime they do reject me, I say, no problem. Would you mind if I follow up in six months to see if this is something that's interesting to you then? And they say, sure. Great. How many times are you going to actively tell me no before you say, you know what, I'll give you 45 minutes. (laughs) So I, I try to start the process with a lot of people, but I hate feeling like I'm bothering people. And so I do hold myself back sometimes, but I have to remind myself, you know, I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. And as the show grows, I'm increasingly doing these people a service, hopefully. Um, but it is it is something where my biggest blocker for growing the show is more outreach to these guests. So the final clip doesn't actually require much setup. It just establishes, I think, that you have done the work ahead of time. Let's play the clip. Something I really love about your writing that you've kind of alluded to, you know, you use you use the images, you use the visuals, you also use metaphors, and you use these different devices to help get points across. 
Can you talk about why you do that and how you know it's appropriate to bring those out? When I procrastinate, I, there's these two characters in my brain, the rational decision maker and the instant gratification monkey. And these these two fighting. And that that was actually initially kind of a more of a vague concept. I'm like, there's this like, I know I should do this, but I don't I mean, I realize I'm like, there's two things. And then creating these characters helps kind of take something that is harder to define and a little bit more vague. And it brings clarity to it and makes it more memorable. So if, you know, if, if I describe these two forces with a bunch of words, in a week, you're not going to really probably remember exactly what I said. And in a year, you're definitely not. But if I have these two characters, you might be able to remember it forever. So it's both like stickier and more memorable, clearer to understand. But it also, a lot of the time, it leverages something you do understand and taking that to something you don't. So... Jay, you were kind of smirking and nodding and, you know, listening along there. I'm, I'm going to hand you the baton. What, what was going on over there? Well, you know, if you talk to anybody about wait, but why, they'll talk about the illustrations and they'll talk about certain concepts. And I remember certain concepts, you know, um, I scroll through my cover photos on Facebook from when I spent time on Facebook and a bunch of my cover photos were illustrations from Tim Urban illustrating like, this is what you think the world is interested in, like staring at you, keeping score. Uh, but really, everyone's on their phone. He has a really good way of just distilling a truth into a simple, almost childish illustration. Um, but you read these long-form pieces that are tens of thousands of words long, and he's constantly creating these like characters um, that he can then refer to later in the thing, which I think is really, really smart. Because if you do the work of explaining a concept and giving it a name early on in a piece, then Later in the piece, you can just use the name and it has the built-in understanding of the concept. But what I think he also does an interesting job of is like he'll talk about aliens in his work when he's really representing humans, us, as aliens. But by doing that, he gives us the ability to detach personally from this thing because it's a different thing than a human and look at it more objectively and remove some of our emotion. I think that's really powerful storytelling mechanism if you're trying to get people to realize a truth that is uncomfortable or something we might not want to admit. It's small but telling. I think this is where your research and your familiarity with the subject come come into play. Um, if we can paint an extreme on either side of, a, a, of the spectrum of research and prep style. On one extreme is our friend Ryan, Ryan Hawk, 10 hours of research for every one hour of interview. On the other is an episode I just uh, banked and sent over to uh, Andrea here to edit, which is with the host of Everyone Hates Marketers, Louis Grenier, who is a self-proclaimed fighter of marketing bullshit. And he thinks everybody over-prepares because that's his want is to question the way everyone does everything. But he gave a very good answer as to why his natural curiosity is an asset. And when he prepares too much, he finds himself too stiff. So he does almost no prep. Where do you fall on that spectrum between Ryan and Louie? I aspire to be Ryan and I have a lot of constraints on my time. So I try to do the Herculean effort that Ryan puts forth in the most economical amount of time. Uh, Today, interviewed a guest who has a fantastic podcast and I will not interview a podcast host without listening to their episodes. Sure. But I was running out of time. I was literally running out of hours. So as I was working today, I was listening to episodes of the show. Often I will go on walks or go on runs so I can listen to shows and not even just for podcast hosts, but the people I have on my show, because they do a lot of interviews, 
I will listen to interviews they've done with hosts that I know do a good job at different points in their career. Like I want to listen to one that's close to now. So I don't ask the same questions, but also I might identify some stories that are really interesting. And then I want to go back in time to hear how they were thinking about things in a way that might be different. So I can intuit the path or what might have changed for them along that path. Jay, let's look ahead. We're going to leave our clips behind and talk about reinvention. I think it's easy for a success-driven show when it's about business and career to start to fatigue the audience. It's just a parade of very successful people. Do you feel like your premise necessitates any tweaking and proactive reinvention to avoid that fatigue? Do you think this has a longer shelf life to go? You know, Talk to me about the evolution of your show from here. What I want for this show is it to build aside, a... Aside revenue- from booking... Aside from booking Bo Burnham, of course. <laughs> Aside from booking Bo Burnham, which is the clear number one, followed by uh, booking Lil Dicky to talk about his show, Dave. Um, what I want for the show is it to be the outlet that people go to to say, what is working for creators today? And the challenging tension I have is people will more likely click play on a name that they know. They probably know that name because they've been around for a while, which means their path is probably not going to work for you, dear listener. And I want you to trust me to find people who are more timely, whose advice is something you can apply immediately. And to build that trust, I have to create a show that people believe I can do that work. And in the immediate term, I probably have to interview some of these guests whose pathways may not be as relevant and try to pull out what I can for what is relevant. Uh, But over time, I'm trying to Trojan horse my way more and more into identifying these creators on the cusp that are doing really interesting things and having incredible success that most listeners would aspire to, but they don't know their name yet necessarily. The show is Creative Elements. Everybody should go check it out, especially if there's a, maybe a familiar name, maybe one that you listen to on a podcast about podcasts who also appeared on Jay's show and talked about stuff, quite frankly, that I have never really talked about publicly before because Jay's a, just that great of an interviewer. Jay, thanks so much. For sure. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Andrea Maraskin with original theme music by Cardboard Rocket Chip. You can learn more about my projects, including my free newsletter, my books, my other podcast, and my course on podcast development at jayaconzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. Castos offers a suite of software tools to help you host and grow your podcast. And specifically, they're betting heavily on your ability to go deeper with your audience in a world trending shallow. After all, that's what podcasts are good for, right? We hear intimacy, resonance. It's not just about reach. It's about resonating deeply and connecting deeply with your fans. And so Castos provides their customers, people like you and me, tools to help them do that, especially when it comes to private podcasting. Wonderful community building and sometimes revenue generating opportunities for us podcasters. You can learn more about how to host your show with Castos and use some of their marketing and community building tools at castos.com. That's C-A-S-T-O-S.com. And if you like this show, send a friend to our website. It's three clips. That's the number three, the word clips, threeclipspodcast.com. And now it's time for our final bonus segment. We do this every episode. We have our guests shout out a podcast that is not at the top of the charts that they'd like to show some love to. We call this segment, Play It Forward. I have been listening lately to a new show called Band Splain, 
which I heard advertised on Dissect, my favorite music podcast. And Bandsplain is taking advantage of Spotify's new music and talk format, where the host will talk about a band that has a very strong, almost cult-like following and explain why that is. And it's a bunch of segments interspersed with specific songs from that artist. So it's a beautiful listening experience where she often brings in a third-party voice, someone that's really close to that audience, to that fandom, who will explain, why do people love Dave Matthews Band? Why do people love Blink-182? That show is Bandsplain on Spotify. All right, that's it for this episode. As always, I'm your host, Jay Akunzo, and I believe great podcasts are not built based on simply who arrives. It's not just about the download total. It's about who stays. So thank you so much for staying with me. It's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. It's about you, the super fan, the community evangelist, the people who love what we do on this show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We literally couldn't do this without your support. Thanks for staying with me. I'll talk to you every Monday with a brand new episode of the show. See ya.